Support for WMFE comes from JustCallMo.com and attorney Mo DeWitt. As a Central Florida native, Mo DeWitt is committed to offering legal guidance in personal injury cases such as car accidents and slip and falls. Offices in Orlando. More at JustCallMo.com. Welcome to Engage, leading conversations that matter. Engage explores Central Florida's issues and culture with new voices, new perspectives, and thought-provoking interviews. Engage is made possible with the support of members like you and inaugural sponsor, JustCallMo.com. Engage is hosted by Sharon Stone. You're listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Coming up, Florida turned down a major federal aid package that would have provided meals for low-income families. We will talk about the impact. And we'll learn about a popular Paramore restaurant that hits the road to provide lunches for the community. First, though, Andrew Bain is the state attorney representing Florida's 9th Judicial Circuit, serving Orange and Osceola counties. He ascended to this elected position last summer. Governor DeSantis removed his predecessor, Monique Worrell, and appointed Bain to this position. The former pro football player and Orange County Court judge has been speaking with Florida residents about de-escalating tense and potentially dangerous encounters with police. Bain is giving advice to citizens about how to cool down encounters when they look like they're getting a bit too hot. We spoke with the state attorney about his seminars, and we started this conversation by explaining why he started this forum. The escalation forums are uh, my way of taking a first step of helping uh, the community understand uh, the criminal justice system, law enforcement, bridge that gap between the community and law enforcement is my way of helping um, our community understand you know, what their rights are when they're encountering law enforcement, understanding that law enforcement is there to help protect them, and that sometimes things that they may perceive as antagonizing or agitating are actually just maybe law enforcement tactics to help them keep the person safe um, and also keep the law enforcement safe. So it's an idea to make sure everybody gets home safe. That's the whole thing. I want every citizen that, you know, they encounter law enforcement, to not fear them and to feel safe when they are interacting with them and make sure everybody gets home to their families. So what had you seen that caused you to develop this program? Well, you know, there's a lot of things that have been going on, you know, since, you know, George Floyd and a lot of the things that happened out of that summer that really been obvious to me that there people were talking past each other. A lot of people wanted the same things. A lot of people wanted justice. They want to have safe communities. They want to really enjoy their lives. And people were villainizing each other, whether people were villainizing law enforcement, people were villainizing, you know, the movements that were going on in the protests. And that's not a way to help bring like longing peace, last longing peace in our in our community. So my idea was that, well, let's get back to the basics. You know, what is law enforcement supposed to be doing and what is the citizen supposed to be doing and make sure that when they have those interactions, that everybody's going to go home safely. Even if an arrest is going to be made, that is one that is not going to put the other person's life or the law enforcement officer's life in jeopardy. 
So that's really the idea to make sure that we're going to be able to get home safely. Can you describe some of these techniques that you're teaching a bit more and just where did these ideas or strategies come from? Well, it's not, it's not a, a new strategy. It's not really a new conversation. Uh, it's just really something that's been heightened over the last few okay. years. Uh, you would really kind of say this is a talk that my dad had with me when I was a young, like a young man, uh, starting to drive, starting to enter the community, uh, starting to be more independent uh, about how do, you, how do you deal with people in general? The subject matter is law enforcement, but de-escalation is something that can be used at any time, at any point in your life. I mean, your marriage, I mean, your friendships, in your, your relationships at work, which are your supervisors. So the idea is, well, first of all, is to build a level of empathy with the person that you're communicating with. You may not agree with what's going on, but you have to understand that that person on the other side is still not a human and, and you know, you should treat them like that. And then there's something called momentum. So how you move, your body posture, like open, like you know, like I'm sitting here with you. I'm in an open body posture. We're having a conversation. I'm not taking a fighting stance. Nothing. I'm not threatening you. And even if somebody feels threatened, if you are open with them, usually it, it, it's hard to fight with somebody that's you know that's at peace with you. That's trying to make peace with you. So that's really one of the two of the things that we talk about a lot of is empathy towards each other your movement, posture, body placement, and then tone, attitudes, those kind of things like that come into play so that you're communicating the the message clearly. Am I correctly understanding that this is intended for the community versus law enforcement? It's for both. It's for both. So Let me understand uh, how it's both, please. So law enforcement, uh, they like they also have a duty to escalate with you. So, for instance, law enforcement, when they go to the academy and they go through their training, one of the things they learn is that you want to, when you're encountering somebody in the public and you need them to do something, you want to get them loud, concise, strong demands. All right? So what does that really, what does that really play out to be? That's somebody yelling at you. In common terms, that's somebody yelling at you and ordering you to do something. And most people's reactions to that is like, why are you yelling at me? You know, so, but that's what they're being trained to do. But we've learned, and the law enforcement is learning as well, is that that may not at all times be the proper way to communicate with people. But if that is happening to you on the other side as the citizen, you understand that this is just something they're being trained to do. They're not mad with you. They're not angry with you. They're just with someone doing exactly what they're trained to do. So my reaction to that can't be to escalate the situation, but to do the exact opposite. It's like, okay, I'm going to comply. I want to de-escalate it. And then the law enforcement officer in that same posture would de-escalate with you. And same vice versa. Sometimes law enforcement comes in too hot. You shouldn't be yelling at people. And that may not be the proper tool to get with the effective communication that you need done. So you need to de-escalate with a person that's already in a heightened state. So if I'm running, if I'm encountering a citizen that's already in a heightened state of panic or fear or anger, um, me and you know trying to go over top of that as a law enforcement officer doesn't help. I need to escalate with that person. I need to bring that person down so then we can start having a, a clear conversation at that point. So then, what would you say to people who say this escalation begins with the police officer? Yeah. Again, that's what, a lot of that exactly is that the law enforcement officer, most, most of the time, is just doing what they're trained to do. 
Like, you know, they just like, so somebody in their training course told them that, and they practice in the streets and in their class, their classroom, stop, get on the ground. You know, so that's, that sounds like somebody yelling at you, mm-hmm. you know, if you're not, you know, if it's, you know, but that's what they're being trained to do. So that escalation, if you, if you meet the person with like the law officer, but then starting to yell at the law enforcement officer, then they're going to just continue to escalate. And then now we're in a position where we're both heightening the process and where nobody's going to get, nobody's getting anywhere like safely. And then now we're going to increase the danger and the likelihood of danger and the likelihood of, of physical um, contact between you and the law enforcement officer because now we're we're competing and hiding our aggressive nature. But if somebody steps back and pulls back and de-escalates, then the likelihood of, you know, the officer even arresting you, like, you know, you getting into an argument with them, dramatically goes down. Now, this, this is not, obviously it's not 100%, you know, like, probability, but we found that it's a likelihood um, in the psychology of dealing with um, these types of in, in encounters with between the public, especially in law enforcement. As we're talking, I'm, I'm wondering, do you have a different approach when you're talking about de-escalation with a black man versus perhaps a white woman, for example? I think it's it's both. Um, but we know that, you know, if it's, it's likely, it's more likelihood that in high crime areas, um, in impoverished areas, there are going to be mostly minorities a lot of times living in those areas, especially in inner city locations. So we want to make sure that, you know, if you are getting stopped in Washington Shores or, you know, Paramore, that your interaction with law enforcement is, you know, going to be a safe one. Because law enforcement at that point is already heightened. You know, you're in a high crime area. Um, there's an area where violence has occurred and regularly occurs. You know, there's, you know, so they're going to be already in a fear-based heightened situation. And if you add to that, to the law enforcement officer's fear, you're not helping yourself. So why, why do that? Why get into a, why try to add to the fear of that law enforcement officer? If you now bring their fears down, then guess what? They're now they're, they're just on a regular street corner. It could have been on Park Ave and, you know, in, in Winter Park for as far as they know, if you if you bring that level down. But if you do things to help escalate that, um, likelihood of you being arrested for, you know, charge of resisting without violence or some other type charge like that is going to increase. So, you know, go home. You know, my like your my you know like my dad's telling you your goal at the end of the day is to get home safely to you, you me and my mom you like my mom and him. And it's like now it's so different now. Like when I get out when I leave the house every day, my job is to get home safely to my wife and my kids. So that's that's my job. So whatever tools that I need to have in my tool belt to make that happen, I need to be able to deploy. And this is just one tool in your tool belt that you can deploy to make sure you're going to get home safely when you are encountered with law enforcement. Can you tell us about the forum on the 21st, just what people need to know? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're going to be at the Grand Ave Neighborhood Center right there at uh, Paramore Kids Zone. And we're going to be putting on a forum uh, between myself, my office, uh, the Stunnel Institute, Noble, which is the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, and the NAACP. 
Uh, we're part and with the city of Orlando Parks and Rec, we're going to put together a forum um, to talk about exactly what we're talking about right now. To talk about de-escalation, we want to run through some scenarios, like some live scenarios, and kind of show how this is how this plays out. And then we'll have a discussion about you know what tools and how do we um, use those tools to actually affect the result that we're looking for. And you are running for election this year, but in 2020, Monique Worrell was elected state attorney by 66% of the vote in Orange and Osceola counties. So then you were appointed after she was removed by Governor DeSantis. I would like to know just why should the voters in the Ninth Judicial Circuit have faith in you as their legal representative? Well, I mean, you could just right now, you can just look at the body of work that we're putting forward. Um, I, I made a promise that I was going to do uh, everything I could to protect our public from violent offenders. Um, and at the same time, I was going to give everything I could to try to keep nonviolent offenders out of our criminal justice system. So um, every policy, everything that we've done since I've come, I've come into office has been to do that. Um, I did. I'm not here for any other political reason. I don't have a outside agenda. I I care about the people here that live in this community that I live in with my family. That I want them to be safe. That's that's my sole job when I wake up in the morning, every morning. Andrew Bain is the state attorney representing Florida's 9th Judicial District. Coming up, we hear from the Orange County recently retired director of elections. And later in the show, we'll deliver authentic Southern cooking with the owners of Nikki's Place. I'm Sharon Stone, and this is Engage. listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Engage is available on demand at WMFE.org, on our mobile app, or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Ahead on this program, the state of Florida punted on a quarter billion dollars in federal food aid for low-income families. Critics say the motivation is purely political. Of the 15 states that have declined the program, all 15 of them have Republican governors. But not all states that have Republican governors turn down the program. We will talk to Eric Gray of the Christian Service Center of Central Florida about the state turning down summer EBT funding. But first, after 27 years of service, Bill Cowles would like to relax at the beach with his family. He was elected as Orange County's election supervisor back in 1996. Last month, he returned to civilian life, retiring a year short of the conclusion of his term. He doesn't blame the chaos that followed the 2020 election, nor is he concerned about a repeat in 2024. His replacement will be appointed by Governor DeSantis until a new supervisor can be elected in November. Cowles joined Engage to talk about his time in office and his expectations following his departure. He started by pinpointing when he started to think about retirement. When I got reelected in uh, 2020 and you saw what the political environment was like then and you see where the political environment has gone going forward, I kind of knew then that I probably would not get all the way through this four-year term. But then when, as I said, when that other door opened, then that began the evaluation process. So who knows, I may have left earlier if it had not been for the special House District 35 election. So I stayed through that. And then uh, I've got a staff here that has over 425 years 
of elections experience, whether it be here uh, in this office or in other elections offices and other states. So the groundwork has been laid for these elections between now and the November 5th general election, presidential election. So they know the processes, they know how to do it. And the foundation, I've got them the new voting machines last year. Uh, we've got all the procedures in play. And we've already had a tune-up by doing that House District 35 election. And now we'll have the presidential preference primary slash municipal elections on March 19th. And it will be a little bit bigger than what we've done. They'll build off of that for the primary in general in the fall. You just mentioned the environment uh, post-2020. And, you know, we heard a lot of stories about election supervisors receiving threats from people who were supporter of then-President Trump. Are you concerned about your staff at Orange County moving forward? No. I, you know, again, I think, you know, you've got to be careful that just because it's happened in some other environment, it's not happening in every elections office. So um, we've been very fortunate. I think here across the state of Florida, we've been uh, fairly uh, fortunate uh, not to have what we've seen in other states. You know, it's kind of ironic. Florida used to be considered the swing state and everybody looked to us. But, you know, Trump won Florida by 3% in 2020. And really the fight was in those other swing states outside of Florida where the elections was more contentious than it was here. And then we follow that up by the 2022 election and Governor DeSantis won his reelection by a landslide. So again, I think it's the recognition of Florida's election code and also of the administration by the 67 supervisors of elections in Florida. Do you think that you did anything specifically to kind of avoid just controversy and people, you know, second guessing you? Yeah, you know, uh, there might be a certain uh, newspaper columnist who wrote a farewell uh, message and he summed it up by calling me boring Bill. And, you know, I told him that I was honored by that because I worked very hard to be boring. And that meaning I was in the middle of the road. I, I saw the position as an administrator. And I've always pointed out that us supervisor of elections are professional administrators. We're not policymakers. So we don't get on that side of making policy. And then the other part I've done is I've pretty much stayed right in the middle. I didn't take my political beliefs or my values and go one way or the other. Uh, it was all about how to administer the office fair and equal to all who participate in the process, whether you're a voter, whether you became a candidate uh, in the process. It was down the middle, fair uh, for each person. After Arizona and the recount following 2020 election, what was your impression there? Well, I, I think you go back to the basic that I have taught over and over again in high school civic classes, but you also have to remind others that, you know, our United States is unique in that the Constitution says that the federal elections will be the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and they, that date is set. 
after that, it says it's up to you, the 50 states and territories, to write your own election laws. And so from that standpoint, that you can't compare one state to another because their laws are different. And so then you come, you know, the next part of that, I think, goes back to uh, the infamous election of 2000. And after that, Florida became the gold standard state with the changes that we made. We got rid of punch cards. We went then eventually in in 2006, we went to paper ballots only. And we went to paper ballots because as Governor Charlie Chris said then, you can always recreate the election when everybody votes on paper. And so, you know, then from that, we tighten up what is a vote, you know, so the voter intent part. Uh, we went to a no excuse absentee, um, went to no excuse absentee voting, which would, uh, later got changed to vote by mail. Yes, the legislator has filed, a, a legislator has filed a bill uh, to reverse that. He wants to go back to absentee with excuses. Uh, I think that's a step backwards. And I, and I think that you know, when you think about Central Florida in particular, we're a service industry community where people work all hours, different shifts. You know, there's not a standard Monday through Friday, eight to five, and you get time off to go vote. And so that's why vote by mail, where you get a ballot and, you know, ballots are secure because there's checks and balances in all these procedures. You got early voting and early voting has become very popular because you can go vote at your leisure or at your, what your work schedule will allow you, whether it be at one of the weekends that were open or at night after hours when we ha- have the early voting. So Florida really fixed their laws going forward. Our voting equipment, again, be an optical scan only, and our procedures were streamlined. So when you look at the picture, you got to understand Arizona has its own laws. It has its procedures. You know, you have states that allow the vote by mails to be counted if they come in after Election Day, not in Florida. Uh, other states, you can't start counting those vote by mail ballots until the polls close. In Florida, we can start as early as 25 days prior to the election to start processing the ballots that are back. Uh, and again, I guess it goes to that analogy that uh, we're now people. We want everything now. So at 7.01, if we don't have results, then they think something's wrong. But Florida has streamlined it so that we have probably the fastest results in a national election. It was very important to you to serve in a nonpartisan way, but you were elected as a Democrat. So I'm curious, what would you say to the number of people who are concerned about the governor, Republican, replacing you with maybe a Republican in Orange County? Yeah. Well, all along the supervisors, we've always been supportive of the idea that of any elected position after judges, we should be the most nonpartisan. That's not something we've yet been able to change, but I know my staff right now is very 
concerned and nervous about what will happen. But again, I keep reminding them that you're the experts. You know what needs to be done. You've got the election calendar. You've got the roadmap to success uh, through this year. And whoever it is, hopefully will be willing to follow their lead and let them guide them through the process. That's former Orange County Election Supervisor Bill Cowles. January 31st was his final day in office. I should mention that we want to hear from you here on Engage. So let us know what you think or what you think we should be talking about. You can send us an email to engage at wmfe.org. Last year, free or reduced cost lunches were provided by schools to nearly 30 million students across this country. In Florida, more than half of the state's public school students accept free or reduced lunches. And in some cases, we're talking breakfast, too. Florida participates in the federally funded National School Lunch Program that provides nutritious lunches on school days. Come summer, school lets out, the free lunches disappear until classes resume in the fall. So to plug that gap, the USDA provides a program called the Summer EBT. It's $40 per child per month for families eligible for EBT or SNAP benefits. Florida and 14 other states chose not to accept this benefit for the residents, though. This decision will impact nearly 50,000 Orange County elementary students, 23,000 middle school students. The state doesn't record high schoolers eligible for free or reduced cost meals. Eric Gray is the executive director of the Christian Service Center, providing housing resources and food relief for low-income Floridians in Central Florida. We spoke with him earlier about food insecurity and the role EBT benefits play. Well, food insecurity is a huge issue and has been for uh, quite some time in the United States. It's really dominated conversations going back now 40 years um, around social services, but it continues to move in the wrong direction. And it's particularly troubling as it relates to very young children. And it's something that we try to address through free and reduced school lunch programs, um, usually breakfast and lunch type programs. And those programs have only gotten bigger uh, year after year after year. And the majority of elementary schools, for example, in the uh, Orange County public school system now have 100% of their students on either a free or reduced school lunch program. And so this isn't something that is for a small percentage of the population. This is the actual majority of students in public school systems are participating in these types of programs. Eric, do you, best of your knowledge, do these schools offer a summer food program in the absence of a federal program? Not um, since, with the exception of the pandemic. So there have been programs around the United States of various types, uh, shapes, and styles. Um, There have been programs, as far as I know, going back to at least 2008 that I'm familiar with. But it's not always consistent. What we're seeing in the last three years is there have been a fairly consistent program that uh, we refer to colloquially as the, as the summer program or the summer EBT program. Mm-hmm. EBT is just the, the acronym for electronic benefits transfer, which is kind of like the ATM card that people use for SNAP benefits. People that aren't familiar with the term SNAP, it's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which we used to call food stamps. And you know, SNAP benefits can only be used on consumable food that is not pre-prepared. So you can't use it to buy diapers. You can't use it to buy feminine hygiene. You can't even use it to buy pre-made sandwiches at the deli. It can only be used on food that can then be you know, consumed uh, by, by somebody after preparation. So the idea that families who are lower income 
need a little bit more assistance in June, July, and August when their school-aged children are home and now are not having breakfast and lunch at the schools is is a real issue. And for for a significant percentage of Central Florida families and, frankly, American families, it takes a strain on their budget because they're now paying more money for food over the summer than they would normally. That also hits programs like mine in a pretty big way as well. I want to talk more about the impact to you as well. But but there is a kind of a solution for the summer. It's this program that Florida is not accepting federal money for. Any thoughts on why they turned it down? Lunacy, idiocy. Um, I, I think politics is a big part of it. I, you know, I, I don't really mind not pulling punches on this one because it really is truly crazy. Um, the you know, Of the 15 states that have declined the program, all 15 of them have Republican governors. But not all states that have Republican governors turned down the program. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's the governor of Arkansas, accepted the program and touted its unbelievable success rate because during the pandemic, this summer EBT program was being tested and modeled in schools all over the United States. All 50 states participated in it, and it showed extremely good outcomes across multiple different measures, not only with children's nutrition, but also with the economic impacts on the families that were being assisted by it, and almost completely barren of any type of, of fraud that was associated with the program. There's like no reports of anything that was remarkable in terms of people misusing the program. So it, it's one of those gold standard programs that really has no reason to turn it down, except that there is a growing number of states who are leaning more and more towards refusing federal funds for different projects in a way to detach themselves from the federal government. You see it happen with Department of Education funding now. They're turning away funds so they can have more control over education programs. You see it with um, Medicaid expansion. Uh, There's still, I believe, uh, it's either eight, nine, or ten states that have not expanded Medicaid. Florida is one of them. And this is money that we're paying to the federal government as taxpayers. I'm paying, you're paying, anybody listening to this program is paying that we are not getting back because it is going to the other states because our state legislature in their wisdom has chosen to say, no, we don't need those funds, and but they have not given good reason why they don't need those funds. And the reasons that they do share are really not reasonable. You're the executive director of the Christian Service Center. Talk to me about the domino effect. That program, you don't get the funding. How does that affect what you can do? So the three most common things that people spend money on in the United States, regardless of your level of income and in order, are housing, transportation, and food. And it used to be that the number two area was food. In fact, going back about 50 years ago, food was a bigger percentage of people's budget than housing was. And then that that you know, got replaced by housing, and now transportation has moved into the second spot. What's happened is, as a result, people aren't buying less food. They're purchasing less quality food. And so you now have this obesity epidemic that has been rampant in the United States now for 35 years, and it is overtaking smoking as the most preventable cause of death in the United States. So every state in the country has a majority population of people who are obese, every single state, all 50 states, all five territories, and all four of the major tribal communities in the United States, they all have an obesity epidemic. And this is directly related to people's inability to afford quality food. When you can't afford quality food, it's, 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 it's not because you're choosing to eat bad food. It's because you, you're, you just can't afford fruits, vegetables, produce, and things. And, and that's because you're spending more of a percentage of your income on housing or on transportation. And that has a domino effect to where I end up seeing people who are homeless. And I see a growing number of homeless 
families uh, with children and a growing number of elderly adults that are homeless. And that's the domino effect that is so tragic in our in our country and right here in Central Florida. Do you see an improvement or a way to change that? Absolutely. The, the okay. science on, on these types of issues is actually incredibly well done. There's numerous solutions. As it relates to housing, there's a, there's a whole approach called Housing First that has shown remarkable advances in the United States. When it comes to food insecurity, there has been remarkable advances, as it's, particularly as it relates to helping children within the school system, actually making sure that SNAP benefits are made available to the families that need it. And there's still this, this real push that somehow people are abusing it or they're not deserving of it. We're talking about families that might qualify for this one program we're talking about, mm -hmm. Summer EBT program. These are families whose net income is at the poverty level. So for a single individual, you're talking about a person who is earning around $13,000 a year or less. $13,000 a year or less. I mean, that's, that's below minimum wage. So for a family of four, which is about the average size family in Orange County, you're talking about a, a total income for that household of around $32,000. I mean, those are the people who qualify. So we're not talking about huge swaths of the population who are qualifying for these types of benefits. We're looking at the smaller bottom 20% of families who are mm -hmm. incredibly struggling to make ends meet. And why turn away a program like this because of politics? The notion is that, well, we don't want to have to pay for the administrative rate. Well, th the states are being required to pay half of the administrative costs where the federal government are picking up the other half. So in a program like this where 10% of the funding is administrative at most, that's about $25 million of the program, the state of Florida is being asked to pick up $12.5 million, but in return is getting $238 million of money that we've already sent to the federal government that's going to support hungry children. I mean, we can all agree on hungry children, can't we? I mean, that's a, a cause worth supporting with, with tax dollars. So I, I don't understand the, the rationale behind not wanting to support these types of scientifically based proven programs. Eric, how do you feel when you see these children, these families that are hungry? It's it's desperately horrible. I mean, it's a nightmare. You know, I have family that I talked to on the way here that I've been really trying to help and, and I feel like a failure that we haven't been able to help them more. You know, little Oceana and Eugene, and they are nine and 10 and they're going to the ACE school in Paramore, but they are living on the sidewalk right now. And I have done everything I can do to help them. And they just continue to fall through the cracks. And then after that, they fall through more cracks. And after that, they fall through more cracks. And so there are just not enough forms of assistance. And what I feel on the same side, when it's this, this desperation and sadness, when you see families like this, I also feel a lot of anger because there, there's uh, far more welfare in the United States that are supporting the upper 20% of the income population in our country than there is the bottom 20%. Uh, according to Matthew Desmond in his book, Poverty by America, um, one of the things he researched was that the top 20% of income households in the United States receive about $36,000 in tax subsidies or other benefits from the federal government, whereas the bottom 20% of families each have about $25,000. So there's this, this notion that people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps somehow. But you know, this is everybody in the United States is receiving some type of, of, of assistance. It may not be cash assistance. It may not be food assistance, but it's some type of assistance, even if it's the mortgage tax credit, which is six times the amount of money we spend on affordable housing subsidies in the United States. So there's a just, it's a, it's a perspective. And I, I just always really bristle when people give this notion of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, because, you know, you can't 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you know, have no damn boots to begin with. It's just impossible. Eric Gray is the executive director of the Christian Service Center. Now, we did reach out to the Florida Department of Children and Families a couple of times for comment on the refusal of summer EBT benefits. DCF said they would get back to us. They had not done that so by airtime, though. Coming up, Nikki's Place serves the Paramore community in their dining room and in the neighborhoods. And an honor for an Orlando sports icon who stands head and shoulders above the rest. You're listening to Engage. You're listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. The Orlando Magic are retiring jersey number 32 tonight. That's the number Shaquille O'Neal wore. Ceremony will be held after the Magic hosts the Oklahoma City Thunder at the Kia Center. So Shaq will be the first player to have his number retired by the franchise. The voice of the Magic, play-by-play broadcaster David Steele is joining us now live. David, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Sharon. So you have been with the team for all 35 seasons. Take me back. What were your first impressions of Shaquille O'Neal when he joined the Magic as the first round pick in the 1992 NBA draft? Well, I knew a little bit about him, uh, Sharon. He played at LSU, uh, you know, a major Southeastern Conference basketball team for three years. So it was pretty well known that Shaq was going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft that year. Um, the draft lottery occurred on May the 17th uh, of 1992, and, and that's when the Magic found out that they would get the number one pick. And I, I just remember being in my living room and, uh, you know, just fingers crossed, standing up nervously, uh, palm sweating, um, hoping for that, uh, that number one pick because Shaq was clearly the guy. And it happened, and we got him, and uh, he, he put the Orlando Magic on the map very early in the franchise history. It was only year number four um, when Shaq joined the Orlando Magic. So it's very unusual for a pro sports franchise to make a big leap like that from, uh, from basically obscurity into the national spotlight, and it was all because of Shaquille O'Neal's arrival. Do you think that putting... Orlando on the map that spread beyond sports. Do you feel like he did something for Central Florida as well? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, he was he was more than a sports figure. He became a um, a, a national celebrity, a personality. Um, he was a larger than life figure right from the very beginning. I mean, clearly he's he's made a career out of <laughs> out of uh, his identity as as the big fella Shaq, and uh, it it started back there in Orlando. Um, as a young 20, 21-year-old, 22-year-old basketball player that just had a, an enormous personality, that big smile. Um, he started doing commercials very early on. And so, uh, yeah, it, it spread beyond the basketball court. It spread beyond Central Florida. And uh, he is you know, certainly now an international icon and was well on his way to that status back uh, even in the, in the early and mid-90s. I love how clearly you remember just hoping for that first round pick, but we are now 30 years later. How do his accomplishments or play on the court stack up against the other Magic players that you have been seeing since then? Uh, well, I mean, he made uh, he was the he he was the rookie of the year that first year. Um, he made the All Star team as a rookie, which is very unusual. Um, he was All NBA three of the four years that he played in Orlando. 
So, you know, you compare him, Dwight Howard had a longer stretch um, and, and had more accolades because he played more years in Orlando. But, um, you know, Tracy McGrady was also multiple time all NBA player. Penny Hardaway was a first team all NBA player. So really, when you look at it, uh, the Magic have sort of a, um, a Mount Rushmore, if you will, of players. And I, I would put Shaq at the top of that. And then you've got Dwight Howard, Penny Hardaway, and Tracy McGrady. Um, and, uh, and certainly Shaq belongs right up there at the top of that Mount Rushmore. Shaq was actually only with the Magic from 92 to 96. From Orlando, he went on to play with the Lakers. And we know he and Kobe Bryant had a lot of success winning three championships. David, are you surprised that the Magic are retiring his number when he only spent four seasons here? No, I think uh, I'm not surprised. Um, I, I think the reason is, is because just what we've been talking about, just the fact that he put the, the city, he put the franchise on the map. Um, without Shaq, um, it's arguable that the team could have uh, wallowed in obscurity, the franchise, for another eight to ten years. And you don't know what, what the future might have held. Um, I think because Shaq and then Penny Hardaway came along the next year, I think those early years of success were instrumental, instrumental in building an identity for the Orlando Magic franchise. So I, just the fact that he was such a great player so early in his career, um, took the team to the NBA Finals in his third season in Orlando, the, the franchise's sixth season in, in existence in the NBA, I think those factors warrant um, retiring his jersey. Also, you throw in that, you know, the Lakers have retired his jersey, and uh, so have the Miami Heat. So he joined some pretty elite company. Wilt Chamberlain is the only other NBA player to have his jersey retired by three NBA franchises. So I think Shaq is well-deserving of that. David Steele is a broadcaster and announcer for the Orlando Magic basketball team. Thank you so much for your time and perspective. Thanks, Sharon. Nikki's Place has been serving authentic Southern food in Paramore for nearly 75 years. Owners Elaine and Nick Aiken Jr. have run the 20-seat restaurant on Carter Street for 25 of those years. Elaine manages the books, Nick runs the kitchen, and their daughter Nikki works the dining room. The food has stayed pretty much the same since Nick started working for the previous owner back in 1953. The menu is simple on paper. It's a home-cooked meal. Nothing fast about it. Old-fashioned, Palmo-style, smothered ribs, chitlins, hog malls, you know, baked chicken, you know, nice cabbage, collard greens, macaroni and cheese. But the flavors offer a complex journey through the culinary history of Black America. Nikki's hasn't gone unnoticed. Muhammad Ali ate there. So did Coretta Scott King. Even Elvis enjoyed the pork chops. But it's the loyal Paramore community that has kept Nikki's going decade after decade. And every Friday afternoon, Nick loads half a dozen coolers with carryout containers and throws them into the back of a battle-worn cargo van cresting half a million miles. Around 2 o'clock, after the lunch rush has died down, Nick hits the streets of Paramore with his assistant, Newt. Yeah, we came from South Carolina, and we moved 
here on Cayley Street in the beginning because my uncle was working for the railroad. Then after my father came down, we moved on Palmore. And uh, that's where we stayed, on Hicks Quarters on Palmore. Then I got jobs on Palmore and I, got, I finally got the job where I'm working right now, washing dishes and learning how to cook. Nick is selling lunches out of the van, smothered pork chops, meatloaf, baked chicken, and sides. Give me the fried pork chop. Okay, you got banana pudding? Yes, I have. Give me that. Made the meat. Made, made the banana pudding this morning. <laughs> um, he said that I get a discount because you did me wrong last Friday. Okay, I, I get a discount. I, I get you a discount. The meal costs $25. I'll give you a five out this time. Uh, what? Uh-huh, now you understand. Why you do me like that, man? I'm hungry as hell. Well, now I'm bringing the food to fill you up, baby. What's the price? Hey. 14. He said, what? <laughs> How much it is? Ah! Hey, God, oh, man! Hey, I got an extra grain of rice on the plate. Nick has a route he follows. The customers are regulars. He's been doing this about 10 years. And on the rare Fridays, when he can't get out of the kitchen to sell on the streets, he hears about it. What happened to you, Mr. Nick? So I had, uh, I had a lot of business at the restaurant. That <laughs> was said, you know, some guy who be looking for me. I said, what happened to you last week? So I said, well, we'll be heading out. we coming out this week. Yeah, regulars. Week over week. And uh, they'll be coming to look for me. So and I'll be looking for him. Nick knows everyone in this neighborhood. He honks at everybody he passes. He knows every building and has a story to go with them all. Jackson Center, every day. When I get out of school, I go to go down, play around in the field. And uh, with Mr. Jackson, he's a young man, better go to school now. Yes, sir. <laughs> See that grocery store right there, little shop? That used to be an insurance company back in the day. This used to be ABC liquor store right here. This is the same. Uh, right on the corner up here, we'll come up a Carter Street. On this section was a place called Dixie Doodle, where I used to catch the orange bus going to the orange grove back in the day. <laughs> and he's seen the community change many times in many ways. Uh, you had less people. It's le now it's less people in the Paramore area. See? Everybody's scattered. This used to be packed. You know, you have to walk, when you're walking out here, walking person to person. Now you can walk anywhere you want to go. Don't holler see nobody. Back in the day, it was packed. So I've seen the change, and more changes are coming. But what I see now, more homes are being built, and I see the people coming back to Paramore because it's less troublesome, it's less dangerous, you know. That's just my opinion. But I see more homes over there being built, more homes further down, Palmore being built. I see the people are coming back to the area, and it's very, very quiet. Nick isn't out here just for the business. He genuinely loves the neighborhood, and he knows that selling these lunch plates is hit or miss. As you see, it's a gamble when you go out on the road. Nothing is exact, nothing is promised to you. Every time you come out, it's a camel. The people be waiting on you. 
Sometimes we go knock on the door, they want something. Sometimes they knock on the door, they don't want anything. Look so, at mama now. She used to get some three or four dinners. <laughs> How you doing, darling? All right. At the end of the day, he gives the meals he doesn't sell to people on the streets. Nikki's place is more than good food. It's a nexus for gathering in Paramore. And on the streets, Nick Jr. is the community's fixture. Yeah, we, we always want him. We, have, we miss him every time. On Fridays, we be waiting on him. <laughs> That's all for today's edition of Engage. And we want to hear from you. You can email us at engage at wmfe.org. Quick thank you to Jill, Warren, Abby Moody, and the others who have already reached out via email. I'm Sharon Stone. Thank you for the company. All Things Considered is next.